Okay, well, we're going to turn um, to First Timothy. First Timothy, if you have a Bible there, turn to First Timothy. First Timothy chapter one, and uh, we're working our way through this lovely pastoral epistle. And we're in the first chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 1 down as far as verse 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his precious word this morning. The verses that we're going to concentrate our attention upon this morning are verses 8 through to verse 11, where the Apostle Paul is talking about the law. Now, Paul here is writing to Timothy, the young pastor of the Ephesian church. He's writing to encourage him to stay at Ephesus and to deal with certain false teachers whose teaching would obscure the gospel from a needy world and also to manage various other issues that affected church life and church unity. And uh, we noted last time that how difficult it is sometimes to obey the command to stay and how easy it is to go. Timothy had an awesome task in front of him and he was aware of it the false teachers he didn't get on with the community that he lived in was not uh, a community that loved Jesus it loved Diana the goddess of the Ephesians he was surrounded by people who thought they know better than he did he had to manage all these various issues or these various challenges within the church and the apostle Paul had gone off to Macedonia now and left him there to do all this 
stuff, he felt quite alone. He also was not very well at times. His physical health suffered. He was a young man who was timid. There were so many reasons why he should go. But the Apostle Paul tells him to stay, to stay at Ephesus. Why should he stay? Why should he not go? And we looked at this last time in some detail and we noted that it was because of love. This was a reason that would keep him at Ephesus, just as love was the issue that kept Jesus upon the cross of Calvary. It was not the Romans, it was not Satan, it was no, nothing other than the love of God that kept Christ upon that cross. Love is more powerful than hate, love is more powerful than fear. Love was that which would keep him at Ephesus. A love defined, as we saw in three ways, uh, it was a pure love, it was a love that was free from resentment, it was love that was free from a hidden agenda, it was love that was free from the desire to get back upon these religious teachers who were making his life a misery. It was a desire that they should be saved. It was a desire that they should be restored. It was a pure love. That would motivate him to stay at Ephesus, to see people saved, to see people restored, to see the church fall. It was love that had a good conscience to it. It was a love that was sensitive to the Spirit of God. It was a love that was without falsehood. It was love that was pure. It was love also we read about. It was love of a sincere faith, genuine concern, genuine faith. There was no hypocrisy there. There was no, oh, I'm, uh, I, I'm sincere when they didn't apply it to the word of God. He applied it all to the word of God. He said, I'm sincere, but I'm sincere because I obey the word of God. I listen to the word of God. I am a, a follower of Christ and I do it genuinely. I have a sincere faith to guard, to maintain, to promote the gospel. What will, what will keep us here this year? What will keep us here this year? A year that may be filled with various issues. It may be filled with times of sickness. It may be filled with times of misunderstanding in our fellowship and that happens from time to time. It may be that you get burdened in various ways outside of, there may be outside issues that cause you to be concerned. What's going to keep you here this year? How are you going to say I'm going to be able to manage? I'm absolutely sure that I can manage through this year. I'm going to persevere through this year. I'm going to be here next Christmas and I'm going to be stronger than I was even at the beginning of the year. How do you do that? How do you know that? How can you stay when it will be at times so easy to go? It'll be because of a sincere faith. The same sincere faith that this young man Timothy had. A sincere faith that longed to be a follower of Christ that kept his eyes upon Jesus that had a concern for the dying world around him. That's what kept him there. That's what will keep you here this year. That's what will mean that you will be here next Christmas, this coming Christmas, because of that sincere faith. Now as we saw, Paul highlights the advantages and the influence that the Jewish converts had over the 
Gentile converts, and it was the Jewish converts that were causing the trouble here. The religious people, the church people, we might call them today, they've been to the synagogue, they've been to the equivalent of Sunday school, they were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, they knew about the moral code, they appeared to be impressive compared to the Gentiles. The Gentiles came to the church, they didn't know any of this. The uh, Jews could recite various passages of scripture off by heart. Wow, these are impressive. And so they were tended to be the ones who took these leadership roles and these were the ones who others looked up to and expected things to be right. But Jesus made clear, didn't he? He made clear to the Pharisees that religious piety is no guarantee of orthodoxy. And here in Ephesus, Timothy is instructed to confront these church leaders who were seeking to be prominent, were seeking acclaim, were seeking, just like the Pharisees of, uh, of Jesus' time, the, the title of rabbi, of teacher, and yet they were adding to the gospel. They were adding to the gospel things, supplementing the Lord of God with other ideas and it was becoming dangerous and in every generation there are people who love to engage in hair-splitting debates and over dates and definitions and the Lord of God becomes uh, and the gospel of God becomes secondary to their overriding desires and their quest to be right all kinds of strange ideas whatever's whatever's new some people will just cling on to whatever's new. Everything will be all right and then they'll hear something new and they want to engage in that. And the trouble is that, that whatever that is new, it takes from the gospel and the gospel's put into the background because this new thing is that which they're going to talk about. This new thing is a thing that's going to be preeminent in their thinking, preeminent in their teaching. They're not going to gospel the they're not going to gossip the gospel. They're going to gossip this new idea, this new teaching. Whatever is new, whatever is whatever is something that's different. The, Athen the people of Athens were people like that. Paul encountered them in the book of Acts in chapter 17. From verse 18 we read, A group of Ep Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Speaking about Paul, of course. We read on, they said, because this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus, of the resurrection. And they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And then in verse 21, notice this, what it says in verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That was the attitude of these people. 
They wanted something new, and they were always looking for something new. And as we read through that 17th chapter, at the end of it, we find that, yeah, a few of the, the people came to Christ. A few of them became believers, but the others, we find, were hadn't come to Christ. Why? Because they, they were probably waiting for something else to come through, waiting for something new to come through. It was always about the latest thing. And we need to be very careful about that. Now Paul here in this chapter, in this these verses from 8 to 11, he's talking about the law, but he's not concerned about the law itself. He's concerned about the way these certain teachers were understanding and handling the law. And Paul goes on in that verse 8 there to say, we know that the law is good, if one uses it properly, we also know that the law is made for the not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels and for the ungodly and sinners. Paul says the same things in the Roman epistle, doesn't he? In chapter 7 of the Roman epistle from verse 7, is the law sinful? He says, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, do not covet. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about in me death so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. That was the right use of the law, to, for the, the law to reveal the sinfulness of an individual so that they would recognize their hopelessness without Christ as Saviour and Lord to fall upon their knees and receive him as Saviour and Lord. Now these Ephesian elders, they studied the law, they, they knew actually physically what the law said, they could recite so much of it off by heart, but they didn't see what they should have seen. They didn't recognize it for what it was, it was meant to be a mirror, showing them what they were like, showing them that they were uh, in need of a saviour, filling them with the holy dread and bringing them to repentance, but it didn't do that, it didn't do that. They saw it as a means of salvation. They saw it as, as a means of uh, making themselves uh, popular amongst the people because of their, their so-called knowledge of this law. They thought they were righteous. They thought they were going to get to heaven by their righteousness. And so Paul says of them, he said, it's, the law isn't for the righteous, meaning for those who think they're righteous. It's not for those who think they're good enough for heaven in that passage that we just read earlier at the beginning of the service jesus says the same things to the pharisees who were criticizing him for his seemingly disregard for the lord we'll talk about that in a minute but jesus defines what the law is and uh, his uh, jesus defines what the law is for he says jesus answered them that is the religious leaders it is not the healthy that need a doctor but the sick after healing that man who was sick he said i have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance it's for the sick, it's for those who consider themselves and recognize that they are unrighteous. That's what the law is for. This, is, this law is for those who are not righteous. Those who look at the law of God and tremble. 
who see their guilt in every command and cry out to God for mercy. The very reason that these men were infatuated and enamoured by the law with these myths and genealogies was because the gospel was not sufficient for them. It was not important to them. It was not all-consuming for them. The cross was taking second place. The forgiveness of sins, the atoning blood, the whole wonderful aspect of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ was no longer central to their thinking and central to their preaching. It took second place. There were other things that were taking priority in their ministry. It was so that they would seem to be clever, seem to be educated, seem to be theological in the wrong sense of the word. This gospel was not enough for them. Not enough for them. Isn't that terribly sad when the gospel is not enough? Isn't it sad when the gospel is somehow becoming boring and you've got to add something to it and you've got to do something clever because the gospel itself in all its beauty is just isn't quite enough anymore and let's see if we can do something else. How many churches today are behaving like that? How many churches today are saying the gospel isn't enough so let's put the smoke screens behind us and let's ramp up the music and, and let's have some dancing in the church and, and let's put some entertainment on. Why? Because the gospel isn't enough. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? So Paul here is talking about the correct use of the law. What is the correct use of the law? Well, first of all, we have to identify what we mean by the law. Because a lot of Christians, a lot of, and certainly a lot of others, they misunderstand what we actually mean by the law. First of all, there is the judicial law, the civil law. And these laws were given to bring order and to keep people safe. These laws were given in the Bible and they include everything for the penalty for murder to the restitution for injuries and the damage to property and to life and to restitution. And they form much of the foundation of our legal system today. If you wanted to read in, Luke, in Exodus chapter 21, for example, from verse 12 to 36, you just have a, an example of the, of the various laws that were there, the various um, parts, the teaching there, the, 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 the legal uh, things, uh, the, the legal laws, the judicial laws that were laid down there for the people in that day. And, uh, but this was the judicial law of the day. Now, now, this is a law that's being challenged uh, and eroded today. As I say, the, uh, the uh, judicial law, the civil law that we find in the Old Testament, we have it uh, embedded in our legal system. But this, this is a law that's being challenged today uh, in, in, in a high courts. Laws that identify what is right and wrong. Laws that identify what is evil, laws that identify perversions, laws that control a society that uh, uh, has sin within it. And uh, we know that the Christian Institute, for example, is uh, one of those bodies that is uh, 
battling against those who are trying to change the law of the land in order that perversions may uh, may increase and be tolerated and uh, and, and Christian teaching may be uh, subdued and controlled and uh, eventually done away with these are this is a battles that are going on within the court systems within the legal system today but those laws the judicial law the civil law is that which uh, protect society, <coughs> control society, and keeps uh, people safe, and uh, it keep uh, and righteousness will prevail. Uh, there is also uh, what we call the ceremonial law, and uh, that's the hukim or the shikah in Hebrew, and it means uh, the customs of the nations. The customs of the nations. And the words are often translated as the, the statutes. And these laws include instructions on sacrifices and ceremonies and, and feasts and festivals. Uh, they're specific regulations that distinguish Israelites from the pagan neighbours. And this is what these laws were put in place for. They were to separate uh, Israel and to keep them separate from the pagan neighbours. Uh, for example, the dietary restrictions, the clothing restrictions, it made it impossible for the, the Israelites, the Jews, to associate and to, uh, and to sort of share meals and, and fellowship with the others, uh, uh, nations around them. And God was very concerned that people would be, the people of Israel would be diluted into the pagan nations, that they would marry uh, within the pagan nations and that Israel would disappear as a nation. So these these ceremonial laws were there to protect and to keep Israel separate. You couldn't, if you worked with Gentiles and Jews, didn't normally work with Gentiles, but you couldn't, uh, if you did, on the odd occasion, Jews working with Gentiles, you couldn't go down the road for a beer with your mates or, or down to the curry house because you were a Jew and they were a Gentile and you wouldn't be able to eat what they ate and etc. And they think you were weird anyway because the way that you dress and it just kept people apart. And that was the reason for that ceremonial law. This is a system that says come out from among them and be separate. A system that safeguarded the identity and the spiritual life of Israel. Now you know as Christians we may enjoy and we may celebrate some of the Jewish festivals, but we're, we're not required to observe those ceremonial parts of the law. Yet at the same time, we as Christians are called to be a separate people. We're called to be a peculiar people. And I know we all smile at that one and we think of particular faces for that when we think of a peculiar people perhaps. But the, the fact of the matter is that word peculiar, it means that we're meant to be a people that is distinguishable. We're meant to be a people that is different different from the world around us. We're meant to be a people that people say, yeah, you know, those people are Christians. They're not the same as us. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, the Apostle Paul speaking there says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? 
What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate. That's what we're, we're called to do. We're not expected to. We're not expected to be exactly like the rest of the world. We're meant to be different. We're meant to be separate. It doesn't mean that we live in monasteries. It doesn't mean that we don't work with non-believers. It doesn't mean that we don't talk to our neighbours and have a, a meal with our neighbours from time to time who are not Christian. It doesn't mean any of that, but it, it means that as Christians we are a people then we should understand that God calls us to be separate. You know, many Christians today, they seem to spend all their time apologising for being different trying to blend in, pleading that they are really no different at all. Guys standing up in pulpits, 50-year-olds with torn jeans and T-shirts, and I'm sounding like my dad now, but saying, you know, I'm, I'm just like you. I'm no different. I'm just trendy, and I'm, I'm sort of modern, and, you know, we can all, you know, the gospel isn't that different from, from, from anything that... Uh, else that's going on and just trying to apologize you and I do not need to apologize and we should not be a people who apologize and we should not be a people who are ashamed don't be ashamed of the gospel stand out for who you are recognize who you are and be glad for it we do not use bad language we do not laugh and make coarse jokes we do not watch pornography. We do not become unequally yoked with unbelievers. We, we should no, not be like the world, but long and pray for the world to become like us with a clean heart and a clear conscience and a full assurance of faith. And then there is the moral law. This is the third uh, distinction in law, the moral laws or the mishpatim in the Hebrew there which relates to justice and judgment and are often translated as the ordinances the the moral law that encompasses uh, regulations on justice respect sexual conduct and encompasses of course the ten commandments it, it also includes the moral law includes the the penalties for failure to obey the ordinances it illuminates the fallen state of mankind. And this is a law that relates to God's moral personage. This is a law that never changes because God never changes. This is a law that is holy because God is holy, eternally holy and righteous. The Galatian epistle tells us there in that third chapter, we've read it recent times, tells us that the law is meant as a a schoolmaster, it's meant to, to show us our condition and to point us to Christ. Now, a, a common accusation, and note this because some of you are going to meet it, some of you will have met it already. If you are, well, we have street evangelists and you will have met this accusation and uh, others of you, if you've got teenagers who've gone to university, they've come back all clever and think they know better than the than, than, their parents, etc. You will, you will get this accusation. The, the accusation is that, uh, oh, you Christians, you, you hang on to, to certain aspects of the law, but you ignore others. 
You know, you say, you know, you shouldn't you shan't commit adultery and you, 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 you shan't live a perverted life and uh, you hang on to those things and yet you, you, you eat pork and, uh, and you, you, you trim your beards and you do all those other things that are there in the, in the Old Testament. Don't, don't talk to me about the law. You're, you're the ones who break the law. You know, you're the, you're the hypocrites. You say this and you, you say this is important, that, that's important. Well, you know, the people that say that they, they have a, a profound misunderstanding of the law because there are these divisions within it and, uh, and, and, and some of these things change. We have a, in, in, in our, in our uh, civil law in our land, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't execute people today. Some people may, may, may say that on certain issues that they should still be executed. That's not what we're going to discuss today. But you know, the fact of the matter is that we adapt our laws but the, the, it always comes from the moral law of God, or should come from the moral law of God. It adapts in society to the needs of our society, but the moral law never changes. And people forget this. And they say, oh, this is all the same, the law of God. No, it's not the same. So next time you have that, uh, that smiling, smirking individual comes up to you, say, oh, well, you know, I've got a clever one for you here. You know, you don't keep the law. Well, just tell him that he's got a profound or she's got a profound misunderstanding of what the law is. The law of God stems from the moral law of God's character. And that is that which we should always recognize that will never change. Now, Paul described just in closing here, because time's going, the, the functions of the law, of the moral law. It is for lawbreakers, he says here in this passage, lawbreakers. In other words, for those people who have no respect and no regard for the moral law and treat the gospel carelessly. It's for the rebels, for the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious and profane. And those two statements, they, they, they pull together the first four commandments, if you look at that carefully. First commandment, you shall have no other God before me. The second one, you shall not make idols. The third one, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The fourth one, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That is all contained in that in those two statements about the lawbreakers, the rebels, the ungodly, sinful, and the unholy. Then he goes on to describe the other commandments just in these verses. He speaks about those who kill fathers and mothers. I unclear um, as to whether there were um, such things happening specifically in Ephesus, whether there were certain cults or certain aspects of cults that were actually doing that. But certainly the fifth and the sixth commandment uh, read that uh, honour your father and mother and the sixth commandment is you shall not kill. Then Paul says uh, adulterers and perverts, people who commit adultery and and perverts, and there's a lot of perversion going on in, uh, in in Ephesus, as we shall see. But that term pervert literally means males in the marriage bed. Males in the marriage bed. Uh, homosexual practices are condemned very, very clearly here in the Word of God. And uh, the course it encompasses the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And then slave traders, he commit, uh, it relates to the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And uh, liars and perjurers, Paul just says there, command, uh, which speaks to the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. And Paul concludes his list and 
Time is going, whether we could go into the details of that, we'd, uh, we're not going to, to do that. But what concludes, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, so we composite anything else that, 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 that stems from the moral law of God, anything that stems out of the moral law of God, anything that relates to, to God's moral character, God's moral law, that is the law. The Greek, the, sorry, the Hebrew word there is hygiene, which means hygienic. Uh, that which is um, uh, suitable to hygienic doctrine, every, anything else that is, that, it, that is clean. The Apostle Paul recognized at, uh, at uh, Ephesus that there were things that were going on, the people's bodies were being damaged. They were being damaged by perversions, but they were also being damaged by something called asceticism, which was creeping in. The idea that you know if that the the world was evil and the body was evil and everything in the physical realm was evil and therefore you should deny yourself everything, and certain people were uh, weren't washing themselves, they weren't dressing themselves, they weren't eating properly, they were they they were just not taking any care of themselves, whatever. And I think that the apostle Paul is relating this to to that issue as well. Anything else that is. Uh, that relates to sound doctrine. God is concerned about our bodies. The, Paul tells us again in 1 Corinthians 6:19, "Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, you whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies." Part of our Christian life, part of the Lord of God is that we maintain our bodies and we look after our bodies and we don't overstretch them or we don't damage them because they are temples of the Holy Spirit. See, the world needs today, we know the law of God, but it needs the law of God handled wisely. So many people look at the law of God and say, oh, God's just telling me I can't do this, can't do that, can't do that, Ten Commandments. That's the way people look at the Ten Commandments. Instead of the way that it is meant to show us what we're like, but to lead us to a saviour who has completed those and kept the whole of the law on our behalf. People, so many people in churches, trying to be clever. Well, the gospel isn't central. The message of Christ isn't central. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, isn't central. Just in closing, Paul reminds Timothy in the second epistle in chapter 2, Writing this second epistle to Timothy, he says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Oh, to God that that might be true of all the preachers in our neighbourhood and in our nation. Let's pray together. 
Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word again this morning. And we thank you for the Lord of God. We see it today not as a set of rules and regulations, but as a, a way of beckoning us, calling us, inviting us to come, to receive Christ as Saviour. Recognising that none of us can keep the law, none of us could do it, and yet Jesus came in our place. He came to die for us. And as we recognise our need, as we receive him as Saviour and Lord, as we invite him into our hearts, we can know our sins forgiven through that precious blood. We can know the righteousness of Christ attributed to us. We can know the assurance of faith. We can know the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we can know the joys of a home in heaven. May that be each of our experiences today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.